Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Legal Weekly Wine, where we take on the hottest legal topics of the week. And boy, do we have some this week. This week, former President Donald Trump was officially arrested on the Georgia indictments. We have his mugshot. Um, We have issues of bail and bond, speedy trial going on, trying multiple defendants at once, which we will hit in this episode. But the biggest legal question that is circulating through the United States, and we are going to discuss at the very beginning, is whether Article 14, Amendment 14, goodness, I'm getting ahead of myself right here. I'm so excited I can't even say it right. Whether Section 3 of the 14th Amendment actually prohibits and prevents Donald Trump from holding the office of president. This is what's on everybody's mind after a law review is being published by preeminent constitutional scholars. And we have one of our own today. We have Dr. John Vile from Middle Tennessee State University, who is one of those preeminent constitution scholars who knows the constitution and has written on it inside and out, who's going to give us his take as to whether there is actually any merit in this article and in this claim, multiple experts are weighing in and we'd like to too. So that's where we're going to start today. Then we're going to pick up with those extra legal questions surrounding the arrest of Donald Trump and what that means. I'm Virginia Tarani. I'm with Tarani Law LLC because you never need a lawyer tell you do. And we are being brought to you by The Law Unscripted, which is hosting the podcast. And here we go with the weekly wine. Welcome, Dr. Vile. Good to be here. Oh, I'm so excited for you to be here. Of all of the work that you have done in interpreting the Constitution, your books, I think it's worth mentioning a few, and and please add on some that you think, because there are a plethora of them. Um, I know we've gone into, you've had multiple editions of the rewriting the United States Constitution. You've done multiple um, books and encyclopedias regarding the First Amendment, the Fourth Amendment. Um, let's name some others for me real quick that, that well, are specific. Well, the, the companion to the U.S. Constitution and its amendments is probably that. And then I have a essential Supreme Court decision book, which comes out every several years, sort of updates what the Supreme Court has done. Good. Yes. Thank you. So we'll put those um, in here. You're going to see them on the screen. Um, If you're watching, um, if you are not watching, if you're listening to the audio podcast, we will put a description and a link where you can access some of those books and see what Dr. Vile has written. But I am truly, I know you've been a guest with us and, and honestly, constant companion with us for quite a long time now. And especially now that we've gotten into season three, but I am truly honored and excited that you are here to weigh in. Um, Because it's the weekly wine, I'm going to do a, a, normally I focus a little bit more on the wine. I'm going to do a quick pitch for the wine, and then we're going to get right to it. Um, Today, I am doing an Aloha edition of Grapes and Vibes, and it is Flying Bubbles Rosé. A beautiful bottle, beautiful wine. I've had it before, and it was actually a gift to us um, from a good friend of mine here in Gaithersburg in Germantown, Maryland from um, Dr. Roberto DeSena of Maryland Spine and Health Chiropractic Clinic. I swear I'm going to pronounce my words a little bit better today. But it was a gift from him, um, especially in the opening of his Germantown office. So thank you and toast to you, Dr. Roberto, and to your clients and all you do to help the clients of Tarani Law. And here's to us on August 28, 2023. Cheers. All right, Dr. Vile, let's get down to it. As I understand it, there is an article, a law review article, and it was written by professors, um, law professors, William Baud and Michael Stokes Pawson. And I understand that you've read the entire 100 and something pages. I have. It was posted online a week or two ago. It's one of these things... And it's paginated and everything, so it looks like it's ready to go. But if it's like my experience with publications is 
they, you know, they tell you you got to get something in by Monday, and then they hold it for three months and and publish it thereafter. But it's you know, it's a, it's in a respectable law journal. It's by two uh, you know very respectable attorneys. And I should mention are others are getting on the band. Attorneys or both? Pardon, are they professors? I'm sorry, law attorneys? professors. Probably they probably I believe they may practice as well. But what's interesting is others have sort of jumped on the bandwagon. Uh, Judge Ludic. Yes. who is a retired uh, but very well-respected uh, judge, uh, conservative judge, and he's from has the US paired Court up of with none other than Lawrence Tribe, who is yes. generally considered to be a liberal uh, law professor from Harvard, uh, and basically have said that they agree with the article. Which is incredible. Um, to me, it's yeah, astounding it, that they well, have. Especially... None of them are particular friends of, of Trump. So, <laughs> sure. the, you know, there's always. But I mean, particularly, you have at least three of them are, are known as conservatives. Right. And so it's not as though, you know, that they're not partisan. They may not be for Trump, but, you know, presumably they are. You know, the, the, the thing to always be a careful for is if you. If, if you tailor an argument for a specific case, mm -hmm. then you always need to think, you know, what if I, what if it's the you know, what if it is a uh, Democrat, the other side being being indicted mm -hmm. or you know, what if it's me? <laughs> right. Um, but they seem to have the fact that this is a law review article versus an op ed. Right. Um, in a newspaper, it seems, right. and from law professors who, like you, are used to research, detailed right. research and writing, um, years of writing and publication, this seems to be a very well thought out and researched article where they've given quite a lot of thought to what the Constitution and its amendments actually say and mean. Right. And it's it's a fascinating exercise in constitutional interpretation mm. because for for listeners who may who may not know what this argument is about it deals specifically with the 14th amendment section 3 so 14th amendment was one of three amendments that was adopted shortly after the civil war so almost everybody knows about the 13th amendment which was adopted in 1865 prohibited involuntary servitude Except, by the way, um, how does it read? Um, except as punishment for a crime whereof the party show been duly convicted. And that actually, there's been some discussion of that lately. Yes. You know, that sort of gives a sanction to chain gang, yes. gangs, that sort of thing. And some people will say, well, you should have just eliminated it completely. But what it, what it was designed to eliminate was chattel slavery, you know, hereditary you know, you're enslaved simply because of your color and because of your, you know, your mother, or your father was also a slave. So 13th Amendment eliminated slavery. 14th, the, the Dred Scott decision in 1858 had declared, was it 1858? 1857, I believe it was, had declared that uh, African Americans could not be citizens of the U.S. Constitution. And so the 14th Amendment said, and this is also controversial because of, the, uh, of immigration issues of late. But all persons born or naturalized in the United States are citizens thereof. And then it went on to, the, the, and this is a part that everybody knows, Section 1 mm. defines citizenship. All citizens are entitled to privileges and immunities of U.S. citizens. Sure. All are entitled to equal protection of the law. All are guaranteed due process of law. But then there are additional sections of the law, but the most commonly cited is, is Section 5, which gives Congress power to enforce the amendment. Uh, but section, section 4 also deals with the validity of debt. Uh, you know, we're going to pay for the debt of the Union, but we're not going to pay for the debt for the Confederate States. But Section 3 is clearly has a historical context. And the context was, you have people, including many senators and generals and others, mm. who had taken an oath to uphold the United States Constitution and then had made war against the United States by joining the Confederate States. Right. And so what the amendment says 
no person should, and and I probably just do the well to see how much we do. <laughs> no person shall be a senator, or representative in Congress, or elector of president and vice president, or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state who and here's here's where we would get to a possible application to Trump, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or an officer of the United States or a member of any state legislature or as an executive or judicial officer of any state to support the Constitution in the United States shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid and comfort to the enemies thereof. Hmm. And then there's a final sentence that says, this, however, is something that Congress could remove. And in fact, after the Civil War, uh, there were some amnesties given to people who, you know, had pledged to the United States, went to the Confederate States and then said, uh, you know, we're willing to we, we, we lost the war. We understand that uh, we are willing now to pledge that, you know, we will never again uh, fight against the United States. Sure. But the question, now, now there's a very technical question, um, and I actually have an Irish, a, a friend who's a professor of law in Ireland who makes a very narrow argument that the president is not an officer of the United States. I think he's wrong. Uh, it's a very technical you know, you have to look at how the word officer is used throughout the Constitution and, and whatever. But doesn't it uh, actually say the, the words that you just read from the amendment seem to actually say president and vice president? Didn't didn't I? Uh, that? No, it doesn't mention it. Let's see. I thought you just read it as no. Or as an executive or judicial officer of any. No, yeah, before I, that. I, I say, yes. OK, no person should. Elector, a president and vice president, right. or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States, or as an officer of the United States. There's some question as to whether the president is an officer of the United States. But wasn't he an elector? What does it matter if he was an no. elector of president or vice president? No, that an elector of president and vice president would be like somebody in the electoral college, I think. But he no? went through the. I mean, he was done the. He went through that to become the president, didn't he? No, he's not an elector. So you're saying the way you're interpreting that is that it has to be an elector from one of the states. No, 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 no. <laughs> I think I've gotten us off base. Yeah, here. no, no, no. But this is important. This is why I want to want, want to you know put the whole thing on the screen when people can look yes. at it. That they can probably probably do it better than than I can do it here. Um, but it's basically if you're an officer of the United States and you have taken an oath and engaged in an insurrection or rebellion, then you're ineligible. Mm -hmm. So assuming that the and I, what I'm letting people know is that there is a highly technical argument that the president is not an officer of the United States, as okay. that term is used elsewhere in the Constitution. But. The issue is, you know, does ha, did could you in fact say that the president engaged in an insurrection or rebellion against the United States? Mm -hmm. And to the extent that one believes Trump is ultimately responsible for the events of January 6, uh, they certainly have been described by many people as an insurrection, uh, and they seem designed to overturn the will of the American people as it had been expressed through voting and through the Electoral College. Now, the problem with, well, it's a great argument. Yes. It's, and, it's and, and they, I mean, unique. So, so if, if we look at constitutional interpretation, the first argument, the most obvious argument is this, this was historically based and that's it. In right, other words, it's only this, applied to the Civil War. Yeah, I mean, we know why it was adopted. Right. The same reason, and by the way, so I can fill it out, I've done the 1865, 13th, 1868 is 14th Amendment, 1870 is a provision that you can't deny people voting on the basis of race. So 
This is one of three amendments during that time, during what's known as Reconstruction, which lasted until 1877. And they're colloquially so, known as the Civil War Amendments. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so one way, you know, if if you, this is tricky because a lot of times the people who argue for original intent mm. are the same people who argue for plain words. Yes. And one could argue, well, I don't know what the original intent was. The most immediate original intent would have been, we don't want people who just fought the Civil War doing what was happening, is they were being reelected in the southern states, and they were continuing, effectively continuing their defiance. Um, now, if you had asked, you know, what if you had said, well, what, did this apply to future insurrections? They probably said, well, I haven't, maybe they hadn't thought about it, but I probably most of them would have said yes. But more importantly, the language doesn't say this only applies to people engaged in the Civil War. It says any, you know, any of these who engaged in insurrection or rebellion. Mm -hmm. So the language itself would suggest that now what's interesting about this and one, one of the things that uh, Paulson and his colleague had to answer was, is this illegal because it is either an ex post facto law or a bill of attainder? Okay, and you'll have Does to it, describe that for us. Okay, so an ex post facto law is a law that makes something a crime that wasn't a crime when it was committed and punishes you for it. Uh, yesterday, you read Sense and Sensibility, violate the First Amendment, but yesterday you read Sense and Sensibility. Anybody who read Sense and Sensibility yes, yes, yesterday shall be sentenced to jail. That would be an ex post facto law. Okay. Uh, or making a punishment greater than it was when it was committed. A bill of attainder is similar, although it usually involves naming individuals. It's basically a legislative punishment that is imposed without the benefit of a trial. Mm. Uh, okay. All supporters of Trump or all supporters of King Charles uh, are hereby committed to the London Tower, the Tower of London. Sure. Or, or, or whatever. So they are they are they are prohibited by Article One, Section Nine, and I believe it's also prohibited to the states in Article One, Section Ten. Uh, but Congress is prohibited from adopting either of those. But the authors of the article argue that doesn't matter because Fourteenth Amendment comes later, and it is a modification of the usual rules of ex post facto, bill of attainder, or any other provisions in the Constitution. It so also... there are some of the interpretive issues. Now, there's mm -hmm. another interpretive issue, um, which is, if you look at Article One, Section 2, what did that tell you? Was it Article 2, three? Section 1, I think. Yeah, Article Section two. 1. Section one, clause five. Before we go to that, let me yeah. let me say real quick, in talking about the bills of attainder, of the ex post facto, of, of what Congress's intent was, to me, as yes, I'm a lawyer, but in looking at it more as what I feel as a regular person is saying, well, but if it's a full amendment to the Constitution. It's not right. just a law passed in Congress. I mean, there are many laws passed in Congress, but how many others do we remember from the 1800s? Right. Um, it takes a lot to become a part of the U.S. Constitution. Yes, it does. <laughs> a lot. And the fact that that many people could actually get together and agree to an amendment of the Constitution, to me, it seems clear that they really intended for it to be there. They intended for it to be there, not just for a specific period of time, but in my mind, the argument is they really intended for it to be there in perpetuity so that right. it would be, you know, people 
after them could see, oh, this would be a consequence of what would happen to me if I engage in insurrection and or rebellion and or supporting and aiding comfort, you know, providing comfort to those who do is a let this be a warning that we are so committed to the union and to our constitution that we don't want anyone who goes against the constitution to be part of a government that would then undermine it. So to me in looking at it, it seems pretty clear. It does. Now there's another little wrinkle, which is article two section is close What'd you say? Section <laughs> yeah, Article Two. So now, so we're on to Article Two, Section One, Clause Five, which okay. I have not heard talked about in the news. Well, so how does that apply? It, okay, so it sets forth the qualifications to run for president. Okay. So no person except a natural-born citizen or citizen at the time of the adoption of the Constitution. Uh, I. I qualify on both scores, by the way. Uh, no, okay. <laughs> Shall be eligible, to, eligible for the office of the president um, who has not attained the age of 35, been 14 years, okay, been 14 years a citizen resident within the United States. So there, this is not listed under those qualifications. Right. And there is a, a, a well-known case, McCulloch, uh, not McCulloch versus Maryland, Powell versus McCormick. Okay. Uh, in which dealing with a similar issue, which is the qualifications of a member of Congress, mm. the court says these qualifications are exclusive qualifications. Now, they weren't thinking at the time, you know, but this is somebody who's also engaged in rebellion against the United States. Right. But they are fairly, they're fairly emphatic that. What happened is Congress tried to expel someone without requiring a two-thirds vote. And they said the Constitution says, no, you're elected to office. You can't second-guess a person's election once you seated them. Mm. Uh, You can expel them by a two-thirds vote, but you can't uh, exclude them. So, again, I think the argument would probably be, uh, and it's been a week or so since I've read this this article that Paulson and his colleague originally published, but I think the argument would be like the same, similar to the argument for a bill of attainder and ex post facto that it, it comes later, so it's a necessary addition. Now, the the where the rubber hits the road, and here's where I am concerned about the argument. I don't know how it's enforced. Yeah. Uh, well, and and it's not so much that I don't know how it would be enforced as I don't know how it would be enforced uniformly. So each, you know, typically states determine who gets on the ballot. Right. And the court has had some court has had some decisions which basically say, you know, you can't be arbitrary about this. You know, if you say 10,000 vote, you know, 10,000 signatures are needed, you can't require 20,000 of a, of a Democrat or 30,000 of a socialist or whatever. Right. But who, who is going to step forward in each state and say, and what would happen if Trump were to appear on the ballot of half the states and not on the other half? Right. Because let's say, you know, Democratic attorney generals would work to keep him off and Republican attorney generals would work to keep him on. Yes. So I think the answer is, if there's time, it would go to the U.S. Supreme Court. And yeah, there's been a lot of criticism of the court in 2000 for, I mean, in, in some praise, you know, the court settled the matter. They stopped the count. The vote went to Bush. Bush was declared to be the president. But there was also a lot of people who said the Supreme Court should have stayed out of it, let the political process play itself out, uh, rather than, you know, make it look like they were partisan. So I, I just don't know what happens. And, and you know, there may be other people other than secretaries of state right. uh, who could bring some suits. And I would think almost surely on an issue like this, you would have divided courts. 
And can the Supreme Court, would the Supreme Court be able to act quickly enough to say either he's not on any ballots or he's on all the ballots? Right. And then the other fascinating issue here, and there's another constitutional clause that comes into play. This also mentions, you know, it's any person or a member of con- as a member of Congress has taken an oath. So what about the what about the people after on January 6th who stood up in Congress and said we're unwilling to certify the votes in Arizona. Oh, interesting. And Georgia and whatever. Did they engage in insurrection as well? Now, one of the problems would be, so to go oh, to the other cause, you can't be arrested, you can't be punished for anything that you say on the house uh, on the house floor. Now, oh. and then part of the issue in the original in this real long article is: is this a punishment? Is exclusion a punishment? Um, you know, it's not. It's not a punishment to say you can't be president until you're 35, or we right. don't consider that to be a punishment. But this is a little different. So it really opens up. I mean, hmm. lawyer, you know, of course, this is written by lawyers. <laughs> People are going to make some money on this. Oh my We're going to have suits all over the country. Right. So the, the biggest issues to me in, in taking that is I, I saw an interview um, or a an article of an interview with um, Luddig, former Judge yes. Luddig, yes. where he was saying that it is it's categorical that there's there's no room yes. for for interpretation. It is or it isn't, and you can't or you you can. But right. what he was saying is he believes it's up to the individual. Let me make sure I'm I'm getting this right. It's up to the individual states of the people who look at who can qualify and be on the ballots, that whoever is in charge of reviewing the qualifications for who gets on the ballots and who doesn't, that they are the ones who have to decide whether he's violated the Constitution. But does he think they're all going to vote the same way? I mean, he believes that, of course, they should. To, To him, he's saying it's very clear Donald Trump engaged in an insurrection. But that's a better legal argument than it is a political argument to expect. Right. Uh, yeah. Right. So he's saying, look, everybody's tasked to uphold the Constitution, but especially right, anyone in the state who is certifying or including someone, either including someone on the ballot or certifying that they have won the ballot. And he's saying it's up to those people to decide because they're charged with upholding the constitution too and following the rules of the constitution. And he's saying they have to not put him on there. His argument is at the very bottom level, they shouldn't be put on there. And if that is the case, and we start seeing like you're suggesting that it goes up through the states, if we start seeing individuals from the states or individual states refusing his name on the ballot or taking his name off of the ballot saying constitutionally under this section, we're not allowed to, then I think those suits would start very quickly that, you know, the, the the base for Trump, um, the Trump voters, so to speak, those who put him in that spot would say, they would say they're being denied their right to vote. Absolutely. We we're voting for who we want. This is the will of the people. The constitution lets us vote for who we want. This is who I'm voting for. You're not putting him on there. And I think it would go up very quickly. It would have to, because we're almost at the election next year. And I think it would almost be expedited because the issue is so, so big. The Republican nomination is, you know, would you want to be on the court to have to decide? that. Well, no, I mean, but you have to, whether you want to be on the court or not, you're a judge. And if right. it comes before you, that's your job. Um, right. You know, certainly but you can do you think recuse. it would be interpreted, whatever they did, would it be interpreted as a legal decision or as a political decision? It would have to be a legal decision. And in this, in my mind, right. this is a legal argument, is an interpretation of the Constitution. It's not political. It's not, is it a Republican or a Democrat? It's not, you know, are you conservative or liberal? It's, are you actually violating 
a clause of the Constitution. And what what place is the court for but to say, this is how we interpret the laws and the Constitution? So the, I the, believe the it problem, is a of course, is, right. The problem, is, of course, is it's very unlikely that Trump's trials, particularly the the indictments by the U.S. Attorney General, the special counsel, would be resolved by then. And so, in the arguments that they're making, at right. least for Luddig, and I haven't read the full article like you have right. of the the original article, but at least what yeah, Luddig, Luddig says, tribe article, I think is in the Atlantic, right? I I think yeah. so. The one that I am referring to is. Let me make sure I've got this right. Um, and of course, there we go. It is it, the title. It's in the New Yorker, the constitutional case for barring Trump from the presidency. Um, this was published on August 23rd, and it's an interview with um, Judge Luddig. Okay, but, well, I think they did a joint article that may have been in the Atlantic. I, I could be mistaken. That, that makes sense. And I know he and um, Lawrence Tribe. They wrote, yes, the article for The Atlantic. Um, so yeah. that's where they put forth their opinions. But what they're saying, or what Ludwig is saying, is it doesn't matter if it's a conviction or not. He's saying it's, it's not based on conviction, it's based on behavior. And if right. the behavior is an insurrection or rebellion, then we don't need to wait for a ruling on a criminal side, we don't need to wait to whether he's been found guilty or not guilty, but only and, look to his behavior. And here's where I think, I mean, this is where if you're on the Supreme Court, the pressure is going to be to make a quick decision. Yes. But you've got to put in rest, you know, people could say, well, he said we should get out, you know, he said we should invade Mexico. That's rebellion against the United. Or he said we, we should attack, in, you know, get out of Ukraine. That's we, we have to be careful that we understand that rebellion and yes. insurrection against the United States is not is not just as you, you've already sort of pointed us that direction. It's action. It's not mere speech. Right. And I think that's where, to me, the legal argument is going to be based. That's what it's right. going to turn on is the definition of insurrection and rebellion. To me, right. that's what the courts are going to have to struggle with. They're going to have to struggle with, well, does his behavior, his behavior in any way, do his actions related to and leading up to January 6th, his alleged attempt to overturn an invalid elect election, again, alleged, and it, there are so many different pieces in it, but I think the judges and even the Supreme Court will have to deal not with will he be convicted under state or federal laws, right. but constitutionally, does his behavior fit within the definition of rebellion and insurrection as defined constitutionally under the 14th amendment. But I don't amendment. think there's a definition in the constitution, is there? There's not. There's a, def there's a definition of treason. It's Correct. One of the, I think it's the only crime that's actually defined in the U.S. constitution. Correct. But the, the terms insurrection and rebellion, to my knowledge, are not are not defined. They are not. And that's and, why when Judge Luddig says, well, this is easy, he's either, you know, he shouldn't be put on the ballot. Well, it's not easy because... There is no official definition, especially not within the 14th Amendment. You read the clause and there's no definition right. Right. of insurrection or rebellion. So the question is, how is that interpreted and right. how do we get that, to it? And can right. we get to it before the election? Right, right. And what if we don't? So here's my biggest question is, what if we don't get to it before the election? What if former President Donald Trump is reelected? And becomes the president, but then there are lawsuits and pending say he's saying not that qualified. he shouldn't be the president. Do we right. take him out? Do, do we, once he's there, do we then take him out and put the other person in? Yeah. To me, it's almost because of that issue. Well, and of course, what could happen, mm -hmm. and this goes to another unresolved question, he could simply pardon himself. Or I mean, he could try to he level. could try to pardon himself, right, at the federal level. 
Right. Now, he can't pardon, as I, as we understand and talked about on the last episode, right. he cannot pardon himself for state, or no one can be pardoned right. for state it, offenses except through the states. That's that's right. And that that's the significance of the mugshot yeah. that we saw on Thursday and the, you know, the 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 move movement down, you know, to trip down to to Atlanta. Right. Um, and, fr- you know, frankly, it's become something of a mockery. I mm. it, it's I, I, I never really thought I was, you know, I understand someone like Martin Luther King, Jr., who says, I'm willing to go to jail to violate a law that I think is unjust. Right. And, you know, people who are criticizing me, they should be criticized for not violating the law. Mm, right. But it's hard right. to understand, particularly someone who has sworn to uphold the U.S. Constitution, essentially, you know, using a mugshot to raise money for himself. Mm. Uh, that seems to me to be a mockery of the of the criminal justice system. But in his uh, mind and and of those of the supporters as does on the other side devil's advocate is sure. well it's the the shot that says this is being done to me unjustly. It is the you know the essence of what is being mm-hmm. done is I'm being made to be a criminal. Right. When the as he's saying the the justice the justice system is being used as a weapon against me. To prevent well, I mean, from any, running. any person accused of a crime can make that argument. Absolutely. And and the, the proof ultimately is in the conviction or not conviction. I mean, right. And you that's know, you, what we're waiting it, on. Right. He has had due, as far as I can tell, he has had due process in the indictment process. Correct. The, the indictment, have brought, yes. brought evidence before a grand jury. And the grand jury has said, yes, there's probable cause to proceed to prosecute. Yes. He's been treated. I mean, frankly, it's hard to complain. How many people who show up at the Fulton County Jail to be booked are given an escort with, what, six six cars and 25 motorcycles and all traffic stops as they go through. Right. Um, It's hard to say he's being picked, you know, now. Well, the idea isn't so much that he's being picked on in the actual charging and what happens, you know, with the charges, but the fact that he's being charged at all, that he's being investigated, that the idea is that the system as a whole, whether it's the Georgia ones, especially Jack Smith and the federal cases, that those are being used specifically to get at him and to prevent him from running and to prevent him from being president, that it's not a process of being bringing justice in a criminal sense, but bringing a political action against a political rival is, is the way that he's presenting it. Particular way. Right. You know, we, we know hundreds of people have already mm-hmm. been convicted for participating right. in January 6th in DC. Right. And, right. And it, it's, if anything, one might argue, you know, he's got, you know, he's escaped two years or so without, any indictments against him now right. you know, the chickens have arguably come home to roost yeah and it's the, one of the other interesting things i'll do a, a final note on that and then we'll move over um to to bail speedy trial and multiple defendants um within our little hour we still have a little time um but one of the final comments i had was timing mm-hmm. with all of this there's been a lot of criticism by President Trump and his supporters, that it's, you know, look, you're doing this, the timing is poor. You're choosing timing inappropriately to prevent me from running, to interfere with my election, you know, with me proceeding through an election, which, you know, timing is that way because we're getting into the the race, we're getting into the season for it. Um, But in looking at the rules, especially in Georgia and each state and each part of the government has a rule called the statute of limitations. 
And that means they have to bring crimes. They have to charge crimes within so much time or they completely forever forfeit the right to do so. Well, not all crimes, but most. Most crimes. Murder murder is famous. You you know, if you commit a murder, there's no state or jurisdiction that I know that doesn't have an infinite, you know, forever and always you can bring a murder charge. But for most charges, most misdemeanors across the country, it's a year. You have to bring them within a year. Most felonies have a statute. It depends on the state. For Georgia, it's four years. You have four years. From the time of the behavior to the time that you prosecute. And you have to charge within those four years. Um, So in looking at the case, the timing is what? This year or next year? By the end of next year that she would have to bring it? Yeah, I mean, she's gotten a lot of criticism for waiting this long. But one of the fascinating things is, and and I know we're going to get to this, so there's, what, 19 defendants, I believe, including including former President Trump. Correct. And one of them has said, Mm -hmm. I want my trial on October 23rd. Right. Basically uh, within a month. Yes. And apparently, if he doesn't get it, then, according to the laws of Georgia, they can't Peace. prosecute him. Correct. So, it, you know, the, the, the Sixth Amendment, I'm sure we're going to get to this. Yes, but the Sixth let's Amendment, do it. all criminal prosecutions, the accused should enjoy the right of a speedy and public trial. Now, the language suggests that the primary beneficiary of a speedy trial is a defendant. Yes. And I guess the reason is, I mean, you know, when you have an indictment against you, you sort of have a cloud over your head. Um, And you're possibly sitting in jail waiting. Well, that's right. If you don't have money for the bond, uh, you would be sitting in jail. And but I mean, I think there are some who have also been arguing that a speedy trial might, although it says the accused should enjoy the right, that maybe there's a public dimension. Mm -hmm of speedy trial as well, that fellow citizens have a right, particularly in a criminal case, to see that prosecution proceeds expeditiously. And that justice Uh, is being done, due process is being followed, the public needs to see that it is. Right. Um, But what's fascinating, of course, is, and you've been in the courtroom as a litigator and I have not, But what's fascinating about the Georgia cases is you have the possibility. My understanding is Willis wanted to wanted to try all of them together. Yes. Uh, That's her stated intent. Talk talk about a lawyer's heaven, right? You get 19 different lawyers. (laughs) (laughs) Objection, objection, objection. Okay, let's hear from all 19 of you. Jury will recess till tomorrow. In any event, one of the defendants has said, I want mine next month. You know, Trump, is my understanding, had proposed a date in 2026. Yes. Uh, you know, he he's in no hurry. And probably in part because he believes if he's president, he might be able to pardon. Well, he Not couldn't pardon Georgia. himself again. Can't pardon mm-hmm. himself for the state charges. But, but you know, it would be presumably... Some of his supporters would give a second thought if he had actually been convicted. Right. So, you know, you probably don't want to run as a convicted felon uh, for office. So his, you know, and as the longer trial, the more you postpone it, the greater chance that memories fade, people die. Yes. You know, any number of other things, maybe political winds change, you know, all of this. Um, but what's fascinating about this is if if this request goes forward and apparently, well, let's go back to why did Willis take so long? Well, it may be that she recognized this was a possibility and you have to be ready to hit the ground running. Yes. You can't say, well, no, I don't want you to exercise your right because I'm not through yet. No, you have to be ready to bring so the fact that she waited close to two years to do this might, you know, maybe there are other factors too, but it might, it might, 
But what's fascinating, and, and here you can help because, you know, my predilection, if I were rewriting the Constitution here, is that if you had multiple cases like this, the attorneys for other defendants would not be in the room. But apparently they have the right to sit in on this prosecution and, you know, depending on, you know, first you see was he declared if he was if he's declared not guilty. Right. Then some of them will say, well, this is a strategy he used. That's pretty effective. Absolutely. But if he leads, if he's convicted, then you can say, well, we know what our strategy is. Yes. Uh, let's prepare. You know, how would we answer that argument? So exactly. it gives them sort of a preview. And again, he's either the, the, he he's this is probably a brilliant maneuver. I know you told me this earlier that you think it's a brilliant maneuver. The only way it might not be is if there's a chance that he could have plea bargained, you know, well, I'll give you all the scoop I have on Trump if you let me off. If he goes to an early trial and is convicted, my understanding is that he loses that ability. That's so my understanding, either, too. You know, depending on the outcome, we'll either say his attorneys are, you know, the most brilliant or, you know, the dimmest of the lot here. Well, and so for Georgia, the way that it works in Georgia, and again, each state has different timelines because in the Constitution, as you read off, there's no specific time for speedy trial. It just said speedy and public trial. It is the defendant's right, but each state defines when that is. Some states, it's like nine months, sometimes it's 12 months, but it's it's fairly close in time. And the way what the time that it starts running is on arrest or indictment. And in Georgia, it's on arrest. So yesterday it started running. Um, August 24th, 2023, his speedy trial, Trump's speedy trial started running. Each of the defendants, as they turn themselves in and are arrested officially, their clock starts running. And in Georgia, the way that the rule is read for speedy trial is it has to be, the trial must be within within the second term of their arrest. And in this case, the way that this is quick. So like you said, she has to be ready to go. She yep. has within, you know, the max is four months, depending on when the, the arrest is made. So in Georgia, one term began July 1st and ends August 31st. It's two months per term. So Trump is arrested well, at the, no, it's correct. It's, he was arrested at the end of August, which is the first term. And according to that rule, the trial would have to be done within the end of the second term, which is the end of October. Now, this is if they claim the right. Correct. Right? If now, they ask for it, right. If they ask for an, or, 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 right, for a speedy trial. Demand, yes, the defendant has right. to, according to the, the laws and the case law that's surrounding it, there are four factors that go into speedy trial. Um, one is whether it's the, what the length of delay is why the delay is, so length of delay, reason for delay, prejudice to the defendant, and whether they made a demand. So if well, they made and, and a right in, demand. In, in this case, Trump had indicated earlier, Trump's attorneys had already filed that they would they would need considerable time because according to them, there's something like 2 million pages of documents or Correct. I don't know if there are that many, but you know, a, 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 a huge amount for them to have to go through. You know, the right. presumably the DA has been working on this for two years and mm-hmm. they've had it for a couple month or so whenever the informal indictments were, were issued. Right. So Trump has not alleged his right to speedy trial. He has not claimed it. It has right. to be by individual separate motion saying speedy trial demand. Right. Um, he hasn't put it in, but his co-defendant did. So One Cheese of his co-defendants did. Right. And what's happened then is he's saying, yes, I want the ability. So Fannie Willis said, OK, we've got October 23rd. That's within that time period because we only have till the end of October. So here's your date. Now, here's what's fascinating the most about it is he has to go through the same documents. Right. His attorneys are given the same documents because it's the same allegations, many of the same charges. It's the same scheme. And if a judge is looking 
at Trump's request to do this in 2026, if I were the judge, and this is whether it's Trump or anybody else, I would be looking and saying, wait, now, okay, so you're saying you can't do this for three years, but your co-defendant did it within two months and had a trial. So how are his attorneys better than your attorneys? Are, you know, that's what I would do as a judge is look at it saying, well, you know, if all of the defendants and their attorneys were saying this is insurmountable, we cannot do it within the prescribed speedy trial, we don't want our speedy trial, we all want to delay, then that would actually improve Trump's chances of getting a delay, maybe not to 2026, but in this case, his co-defendant has gone in and thrown down the gauntlet by saying, I want the speedy trial. I can be ready in two months' time. Bring it on. Here we go. And part of it, in my understanding, if he were to go, if they were to be done seriatim, so individually, mm-hmm. could you use earlier convictions? Yes. Or later so- ones, so... He won't have anybody in front of him who has been convicted Correct. as a co-conspirator. Correct. Whereas if he comes later down the line, and many of them have, he might be in greater legal jeopardy. That's exactly right. So what happens, especially in a conspiracy environment, whether yes. it's a RICO charge, which is technically a conspiracy, right? You're alleging there's an enterprise, an entire group of of people in this case that is conspired and worked together to produce this effect. And with that, you can, just like if you're prosecuting a gang, you can use their convictions for that crime, for that same conspiracy, for that same enterprise to prove that there was such an enterprise. Right. So Cheeseburg goes in and there's no prior convictions. Nobody else has been convicted. You can't even necessarily say that they've all been arrested, depending on, you know, the evidentiary rules. But Fannie Willis can use the prosecution to say, well, there are all of these other co-conspirators. There are all of these others involved in the enterprise. But what she can't say against him is they've already been convicted that this was an enterprise. So a court has already determined, a jury has already determined that there is an illegal enterprise and that these people were part of it because they're already convicted. And because these people were a part of it, well, Mr. Cheesebro picked up the phone and talked with them. He worked with them. Fonnie Willis might be in the same position that John Sirica was in back in the Watergate. How so? You won't remember this, obviously. I I remember Watergate, but not that particular part. Well, in Watergate, what he did, he had defendants before him that he gave, he would not, either he wouldn't give them bail at all, or he gave them unusually harsh Mm -hmm. sentences in the hope that one of them would would crack and one of them eventually did. Absolutely. And he was he was named if I recall man of the year. Oh interesting. Uh, you know, a, a federal judge who, you know, prior to that time actually was I think he was called Hanging John or something. Oh. <laughs> or, you know, he had a reputation as being pretty harsh but you know, maybe not always in a good way, but in this one in this one actually cr- sort of cracked the case. And, and here this, you have, you know, mm-hmm. somebody, I mean, it is interesting, isn't it? I mean, you have someone at the state, and I don't know Willis that well, but, you know, someone at the state level who possibly could have a major impact on a national uh, issue. Absolutely. And, of course, from her perspective, you know, her job, you know, she believes that someone was trying to keep legitimately elected electors from her state from voting as they had been voted to casting their vote as they had been uh, asked to do. Right. Uh, so she's simply, from her perspective, simply upholding Georgia law. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. So one of the, with this issue of these 19 defendants, and again, I, I have called and, and le- the legal maneuvering here is so fascinating. We yes. are truly in a historic time 
And I feel privileged to be a part of this time to see the forefront of what is happening. The basic legal maneuvering here with these 19 defendants, you're absolutely right with Watergate. So what's going to happen here is if, if they pick off individually and one has a trial, then another has a trial. If they continue to get convicted, I'm not saying any of them will, but if yeah, they we do, don't, yeah. if even a significant majority do, then the next defendants would be like, oh my gosh, I better do something. Because if there's a really right. harsh sentence for Cheeseborough, the next person's going to say, wow, well, he's an attorney. He's going to, you know, and this is what they did right. to them. What chance do I have? I'd rather make a deal than risk a jury. Now, each jury is different. You don't have the sure. same jury. But the more it goes along, the more likely it becomes the prosecution gets easier. Well, unless now it goes I know the how other to direction. Do, right, unless it goes, unless the, it other goes the other direction. But yeah. if it goes in the conviction sense, right. they'll have more practice. You know, they'll the, know the, what works. To, to bring up Watergate, the, mm -hmm. the big difference between this and Watergate is, you know, when Nixon was never indicted. Right. Well, he was named as an unindicted co-conspirator, which is a term we've talked about before on here. But he was pardoned by Ford before he was indicted. Correct. But what happened is President Nixon resigned. Right. And the reason he resigned was first there had been, as there had been with, with President Trump, there had been congressional investigations. But... Leading senators, leading Republican senators, came to him and said, you know, Mr. President, we're about to have impeachment charges against you. We think we would have to vote with the impeachment. Mm. And he realized at that point, if he didn't have the support of his own party, then he would undoubtedly be, a, you know, impeached and removed from office. Sure. Now, in this case, for reasons, complex reasons, a lot of Trump supporters continue to support him. Yes. Even after, well, of course, I mean, they supported him through two impeachments, mm -hmm. uh, the second of which I think certainly was much stronger than the first. But they continue now to support him through indictments. And again, he is legally innocent till proven guilty. Absolutely. But, you, you know, people in the Republican Party have got to worry about what would happen if he is convicted between his nomination and his election. Right. Um, and, you know, to go back to our earlier discussion if I were a Republican opponent of President Trump, I think at the Republican National Nominating Convention, I would be making the argument that we shouldn't have we shouldn't nominate someone, e even even maybe if he had won the primaries. Mm. We cannot afford to nominate somebody who has actually been indicted and were maybe even by then convicted. Um, you know, that, that seems, a, I don't know. <laughs> it, it will be hard. And then when we get it going back to our, our discussion about what do the courts do and what is sure. the timing in either sense, there is a risk if he runs, which he is continuing to run, there is a risk for both parties. If he gets elected and then is removed by the courts, what does that do? But then in well, the I, alternative... I think the 25th Amendment covers that. I, right. I would have to go... Yes, but yes. I mean, in other words, things... I think the vice, his vice president, I think, would then be whoever the Correct. nominee is. There is, there is an, a pecking order of who right. happens. But, right. but the larger question is, well, is that what we... We didn't want that person. It wasn't about the vice president. It was about the president. And now our president is being removed. But the, the question to me is, yes, 
the vice president would be there, but the larger question is if they were improperly done, then shouldn't it go to the Democrat? Shouldn't it go to the other party? And vice versa, if the Democrat became the president and Trump was removed by court order or was not allowed by court order, but should have been there, then can we take the Democrat president out and replace him? So yes, there's a pecking order once the party is actually elected, but then now we're really getting into the election was stolen. The new election, the both... Republicans and Democrats are already set up in a position to decry the election was stolen from us because either Mr. Trump could not have run, and if he wins, he should not have been in there, nor should the Republican Party. It should have been Democrat Joe Biden or whoever it is that officially receives the nomination. And in the alternative— The Democrats would say, well, if Mr. Trump is now president again, but shouldn't have been, then it's Joe Biden or who our nominee was. It's not his vice president. It's not the 25th Amendment that applies. It's the original Constitution. This article, you know, is Section 2 of Amendment 14. And now we're looking at a review and reorganization of power. And in my mind, To me, there is urgency in deciding and figuring out this particular issue that has been raised. In other words, whether whether Trump can legally run for president. Correct, because it's going to be so much harder of a national (sighs) trauma is one word for it, but another larger issue for the entire country as a whole. So to me, time is of the essence for all of these trials for this constitutional issue to be And of be course, the problem, the, the problem, right, is we're not going to actually get to the issue of Trump on ballots until whenever the convention is. And when is that? You know uh, more than I. I Isn't knew you were going to ask. Right? <laughs> Usually June-ish. Of next year. Yeah. Yeah, so... Do we have to wait till then, and do we speed it up, and how do we get it up to the Supreme Court? Well, I mean, who else can change? Again, I think at the Republican National Convention, one could raise a challenge. Sure. Um, At least initial challenges is could he be the Republican nominee? Yeah, but but that wouldn't necessarily be a legal challenge there. It would just be sort of a prudential, you know, do we want to elect somebody who might, in fact, be convicted? And, you know, and we've talked— Again, if, if for federal charges, can a president pardon himself? I'm inclined to say no, that it's just so. But it, it's one of those times where you're sort of making almost a natural law or natural justice. Well, I guess you call it due process. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't know any other. We certainly have cases, you know, can a person find an individual if that person is getting a cut of the fine. Right. And the answer is no. And you certainly could probably work from cases like that to say, well, you know, no person should be judged in their own case. Right. But the, I mean, the other, we're backing out of constitutional interpretation. If the constitution doesn't specifically, you know, it does have a specific limitation you can't you can't pardon someone who's been impeached for that offense, but if that was a qualification and it's the only one they listed, maybe that's the only one they intended. Right. So right. you know, could they could they <sighs> have <laughs> could have should have would have could they have imagined yeah. having a hopefully they could they would have found it hard to imagine a president who had committed the defense that he needed to pardon himself from. (laughs) It it seems a little outside of the normal realm of thinking. Um, Again, historic times, whether you agree or disagree with what's happening, I think everyone can agree that these are historic times. They Um, are. 
so so here's what we're going to do. We're right about at that hour, which I hate to go over the hour. So we're going to postpone the issue of bail and bond, um, though it okay. is a fascinating issue. Um, yes, so stay it is. Tuned. Give us we, the time to do a little more research. Exactly. Um, so that will be coming up because, you know, these defendants are being placed with, you know, bail bonds and they're getting surety bonds. So we can discuss what that means later and especially in terms of um, President Trump. But what we will do is we will wrap up our conversation today. Stay tuned for next week. These are highly important and interesting legal times. Political, yes, but at least for me as the attorney and for, for Dr. Vile, for the Constitution expert, legal times indeed. So we wish you um, a wonderful happy hour. We hope you grabbed your own glass of wine or something to enjoy Enjoy the end of the Friday and end of the week. And then this, our conversation spurs you on to continuing conversations of your own. Check back in with us for next week. Let's see what happens and what else we can um, confuse you and ourselves with. And have a lovely conversation. Dr. Vile, thank you so much for joining us again. You're welcome. And just as advice, do not engage in any rebellion or insurrection oh, against the United States until you, <laughs> at least until you hear the next session. <laughs> please don't. And yes, as, as goodness, as an attorney, especially, um, I cannot advise you. I am not providing legal advice or instruction, but the one piece of general legal advice I can always provide to anyone is please don't engage in any acts of violence. Um, or threats of violence. Uh, that That is a recipe for disaster legally and otherwise. Um, but that is where we stand because I am with Tarani Law. I am not representing anyone in this case, nor do I have an association with any of the parties in these cases, federally or statewide. We are simply making legal analysis and discussion regarding the issues that are raised through these indictments, through these cases, and through the constitutional analysis. So with that, happy Friday. Thanks for joining us at The Legal Weekly Wine.